The New Testament book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul from prison because of his ministries for Christ. This one short six-chapter book offers the believer rich and memorable Word of God for his or her identity, what it means to know Jesus, our goals for Christian character, behavior, joy in the Holy Spirit, Christian marriage and family, and how to fight your spiritual battles. The book of Ephesians is a book of power to transform our daily lives. I'm very much enjoying with you entering the book of Ephesians and being reminded who we are in Jesus Christ, how He has set a destiny for us, that when we bind ourselves in Him, He is taking us to a location, a place, an inheritance. He has already sealed us with the Holy Spirit to let us know that we are His. He has already seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We have an identity, we have a direction, we have an inheritance, and we have a calling. And when we got to chapter 4, one of the things that I've pointed out to you is that Paul very often in his messages starts with, in his letters, starts with doctrine, the first few chapters, and then the second half of his letters will often be focused on behavior. What is our practice supposed to be? How do we line up our lives so that it matches our doctrine, matches our teaching? Now, when we got to chapter 4, Paul began using this statement, this repetitive statement, walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. And I mentioned to you that the word walk, which shows up several times in this letter, is not about the walks we take in afternoon, so we get a little aerobic in the day. But the walk that we're talking about here is our habit of life. It's how we live on a daily basis. How do we act as a normal when we speak, when we do? And so Paul's call to us is, okay, you have received Jesus Christ. You have received the gospel. You have taken him as Lord. You have identified yourself as God's children, God's people. So walk worthy of that calling. Conform your behavior, your speaking, your thinking, your acting, so it matches that identity of being children of God. Now, when we got into Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, we got into what may be my favorite passage on church leadership, an extremely important passage that describes that the purpose of the leaders of God's church is to help support and equip His people for their ministries so that they can take on the work that God has designed them for. And that way the whole body of Christ is built up and all of us mature together as each one of us does our work. But then after getting through that passage on leadership, Paul began talking about a number of normal fleshy, fallen human behaviors that we see in our world every day and that sometimes we practice to the detriment of our lives and our relationships. We sometimes allow anger to run us and to change what kind of people we are. Sometimes we allow anger to remain too long so that it morphs and mutates and grows. Sometimes we allow our conversation to become 
not positive. And I'm saying it like that because when Paul gives his definition in Ephesians 4.29, let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up that it may benefit those who listen. Yeah, it's hard. And you heard me confess to you that, yeah, it's hard enough to do the let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth. I mean, you kind of expect somebody to say that in church. That's difficult enough. But then for us to limit our communications, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may grace or benefit those who listen. I know for me, I feel like I would be quiet a lot more often. <laughs> be if, I, if I measured my words, do they actually build somebody up? And then chapter 4 ended with be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now let me give you a warning. These things that we're reading and talking about and these things that we're going to get into today, Satan can really mess with you on this stuff. Because especially if you feel like you've been victimized at some point in your life, it can be very natural for you to sit there and listen to these teachings of the Word and say, that's right, and you know so-and-so really ought to do that. I had a roommate once. I, I, went to a, I went to hear a sermon and my roommate was there, and the sermon really cut my heart. number of things that I could see from the Word of God that I needed to change. But I was shocked with my roommate when he came out and the message he got from the message was all the people he knew that needed to change the way they did this and change the way they did that, change the way they did that. And he heard the same message I did, but he found no transformation for himself at all. It was all about what everybody else needed to change. And I need to warn you that as we look at these moral lines of the scripture, that Satan will play that joke on you. You know, he's an accuser. That's what the word Satan means. So you can be a wife or a husband and come out of a message like this and say, yep, that's what my spouse needs to do. When instead, what you need to be doing is, you know, keep your fingers to yourself and say, what is it that God is trying to convert in me today? I mentioned to you during the communion that we pray this prayer our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. You know, the rubber really hits the road when we say, let the kingdom come into my life. May your will be done in my life. I mean, who's going to bring the kingdom into your house? It's going to take you being converted for the kingdom of God to be in your house how you treat your roommates, how you treat your children, how you treat your spouse, regardless of what everybody else does. Do we pray that prayer and mean it? When we got into chapter 5, he warned us away, this very politically incorrect, he warned us away from all the sexual immorality which has always been a challenge to human life and human culture. Sexuality is an extremely powerful part of what it means to be human. And it is also something that we are persistently interested in corrupting, using in ways that are destructive.
to our lives, to those around us, and to society as a whole. We make the mistake sometimes, and we hear the mistake sometimes, of thinking that sexual sins are victimless sins, and nothing could be further from the truth. They are sins, in fact, that bring communities down, regions down, nations down. They destroy the fabric of families. Sex is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it's something that's so powerful that it needs to be protected by covenant under God. Therefore, do not become partners with those who are of disobedience and of darkness, Paul says. We, we had a lot of negative stuff we had to read about cleaning up. From 4.18 all the way down to 5.17, we've been reading about parts of our humanity and fleshliness that needs to be cleaned out. In 5.18, he tells us about the life characterized by being filled with the Spirit. Now this passage, once I discovered it, made a real impact on me because like you, I've heard people talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if I were to ask any 10 Christians from any 10 different churches, what does being filled with the Spirit look like? What kind of answers might they give me? It might all involve, you know, I don't know, speaking in tongues, dancing, hopping, shouting, screaming. What does being filled with the Spirit look like according to the apostles? Check it out. Don't get drunk on wine. He says in 5.18, which leads to debauchery. Debauchery is a, a word that refers to when the inhibitions come down and we allow the alcohol to turn us into a different kind of person. Um, it's a moment that becomes wasteful, risky, dangerous. We cross lines we wouldn't normally cross. Psychologists tell us that in the thinking parts of our head, we have behavior inhibition systems, which keep you from doing some of the things that you think about, which is a good thing. And we also have behavior activation systems, which cause us to initiate actions. It's when the behavioral activation system puts out more energy than the inhibition system that we do something, good or bad. Well, some of us know what it's like to get drunk on wine and to watch the behavioral inhibition system go to bed <laughs> and the rest of us just takes off and flies and the next morning we wonder what in the world we did. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to that kind of uninhibited wastefulness, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Notice the difference here, the contrast between being filled with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And just like being filled with wine can take you in one direction, so being filled with the Spirit takes you in a completely different direction. Now, I want to highlight for you that the Apostle here describes five different behaviors as being connected with being filled with the Spirit. And you'll find these behaviors from verse 18 through verse 21. As we go through these verses, look for these words. They are these. Speaking. 
singing, making music, giving thanks, and submitting. Those are five words that the Apostle Paul describes as being connected with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. How we speak, singing, making music, being thankful, and submitting. That is when the work of God is moving us forward. Check it out. 518. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Wow, I don't usually speak in song. But isn't that funny when, when the Spirit is in us, when He's moving in us, it will come out in how we speak to each other. Our words become blessings. Our words lift up. Our words may even have words of songs in them. Psalms are songs that you listen to that are accompanied by instruments. The verb solo, where we get the word psalms, means with the accompaniment of stringed instruments. To pluck. That's what that means. David, of course, as you know, uh, was a liar. Uh, he played a liar. That's different, right? L-Y-R-E. He played a small harp called a liar. And that's why a lot of the music that he wrote is called Psalms because it was delivered next to the plucking of an instrument. Then we have hymns. Hymns are unaccompanied songs. They are times we sing when there's no one else playing, we're just lifting up our voices to the Lord. Now, when I was a small child, I was in a, well, I hesitate to call it a daycare because it wasn't like anything that would exist today. There was a woman in my town named Mama Copley. And Mama Copley took care of 17 children. During the course of her day, nobody would permit her to do that today. But Mama Copley took care of 17 of us, and I, at the age of nine, was the oldest one there. There were cribs all over the place. There were babies like mean Julie Green, who used to beat her head on the floor. And just every permutation of child you can imagine was in that house. Mama Copley sang songs to Jesus all day long. You can imagine why. <laughs> Singing songs to the Lord was the only way Mama Copley got through those days. And singing spiritual songs. By the way, let me mention to you that we do have record of Jesus and the disciples singing a hymn. In um, Mark chapter 13 and in Matthew 26, we find out that on the evening of the Lord's Supper, after all the activities with the Lord's Supper were done, it says, then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. And so before going to Gethsemane, Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn together, an unaccompanied song. Then we have psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Most people interpret the language spiritual song as referring to a song that comes from the words of Scripture, where the words of the Bible itself are used for the songs. 
Okay, so here we go. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Let me ask you a question. If you did that during your day, would it change how you live? (laughs) Would it change your attitude? It would change mine. Because instead of spending my day with thoughts and internal singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I would much prefer to worry, wouldn't you? That's what I would much rather do, is worry and fret and be angry at various persons. You know, why why sing internal hymns to God when I can be angry at somebody and be worried instead? This is what Paul describes is a picture of, of letting the Spirit fill us instead. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know what? I don't care how badly you might sing, you've always got somebody who is a ready audience, and he loves to hear you sing to him. The Almighty God who spun out galaxies like dust, he wants to hear your voice. That's neat. He is always ready and wanting to be your audience. Verse 20, giving thanks. Okay, now you're going to love these words. Giving thanks always and for everything. Giving thanks always and for everything. (laughs) I've got a ways to go, brothers and sisters. I do. I can recognize inside myself that turning my head from what is normal in my head to the attitude of gratitude, it's like changing a channel on the TV set. It's like I have to dial into a completely different station. But boy, I tell you, does it make a difference. I have two pictures in my head right now of the power of the attitude of gratitude to convert how we experience our external circumstances. Some of you have heard me mention before that amazing woman who died in the concentration camp at Auschwitz, Betsy Ten Boom, who had a living, active relationship with Jesus Christ in the middle of that Nazi-driven hell. Betsy Ten Boom instructed the women that were with her, how to give thanks for the fleas in the blankets and bedding that the Nazis had given them in their barracks. Betsy pointed out two things about the fleas. Number one, they could all recognize that the fleas didn't care a thing about Nazis. And because of that, those fleas were a living example that the Nazis couldn't control everything. That they couldn't make everything afraid. That being afraid is actually a choice. The second thing that Betsy Ten Boom pointed out about those fleas is that because there were fleas in the blankets, the Nazi guards did not want to come in to the women's barracks and abuse the women there. They didn't want to come into the barracks because they didn't want to get fleas. And so in a funny way, these fleas that you and I would complain about had become the protectors 
of the women in those barracks. But what kind of eyes do you have to have to see fleas that way? Betsy Ten Boom made her sister Corey, who wasn't converted till later, made her sister Corey very, very angry one day because Betsy saw a Nazi guard beating one of the women and she said, oh, that poor thing, and began to pray for the guard. The sister was enraged. She thought that poor thing was the woman who was getting beat. Betsy saw the man whose heart was so lost in darkness that he would actually beat someone and prayed for his soul. That is a converted mind. And the amazing thing in God's sovereign will is that Betsy was the one who died in that concentration camp. And guess what? It was the angry, unbelieving sister that, believe it or not, the Nazis made a clerical error and released Corey Ten Boom. Just let her go. And Corey then wrote a very, very powerful book, which has led to a powerful movie and a powerful song called The Hiding Place, when suddenly the life of her sister dawned on her who she had been privileged to live with another example of this attitude and gratitude we ran into this morning because of the adult lesson led by our own jay moore here as he was teaching an amazing picture of david in psalm 57 psalm 59 after he's enjoyed fame and success in israel and is rewarded for that by being hounded almost to death by king saul he finds himself in a cave, and it is so easy for me to imagine modern human beings like me sitting in that cave, bitterly saying, here I am, and this is the thanks I get. This is the thanks I get for demonstrating faith and killing Goliath. This is the thanks I get for leading the king's armies to victory. Here I don't even have a source of food anymore. I have to hide. That's not what David says. God, you have sustained me. You have fed me. And when he looked at the darkness of the cave over his head, he said, here I am in the shadow of your wings. Let me tell you, it is an expression of the fullness of the Holy Spirit when you can hide in a cave and see it as the shadow of the Lord's wings. Only the Spirit gives us eyes like that. And that attitude of gratitude is such a critical way for us to change our thinking. He actually says those words, giving thanks always and for everything. Always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then 21, submitting to one another, out of reverence for Christ. In the family of faith, we are called upon to find ways to put ourselves in station below others, below our brothers and sisters. That we are to find ways to subject ourselves to each other. To submit to each other, to listen to the other. Friends, you know, we, we don't do this. We don't do this much in the United States. Our country is obsessed with 
we, we have become obsessed as a country with getting our rights. And so we stand and we demand and we fight for our rights. We want, we want always to receive what is our due. How different it is to change that attitude into a model of service. I'm reminded of the conversation between Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel 20 where two dear friends come together but they have radically different opinions about Jonathan's father. I mean, it's not like it wasn't something that mattered. David says, I tell you, not a step exists between death and me from your dad. And Jonathan says, I tell you, that's not true. My dad intends no harm to you. He tells me everything I would know. David says, no, your father's not talking to you because he knows you're my friend. Now, what would happen in an argument like that today with the people that you know, with the people that you're with? You know what happened? When you read 1 Samuel 20, you get one of the best pictures of what loving, godly relating is that I've seen anywhere. Because Jonathan recognizes that even though he disagrees with David, David fully believes what he's saying. And Jonathan, as a friend, says, what do I need to do to support my, my friend? Because he's fully believing that my dad is after him to kill him. And so Jonathan submits himself. He suggests to David a way to test dad and find out if dad is as dangerous as David thinks. David then submits himself to Jonathan and says, yes, I'll go along with that. And together, because they're both listening to each other, they're both valuing what the other person says, they're able to come to something that recognizes the heart in each one. That's what's missing from so much conversation today. Is we treat our arguments like they're competition instead of trying to figure out how to love each other in the midst of them. And let me remind you again, don't let Satan play the trick on you of saying, yeah, that other person really ought to get this straight. This message about the fullness of the Holy Spirit needs to be focused on us, ourselves. We need to hear what God wants to change in us. And I want you to notice that when 21 goes to famous verse 22, or I should say infamous verse 22, it has started all the way back to 417. We've been talking about the body life of the church. But in verse 22, that body life of the church has to come home. That bringing Christ in as Lord has to go behind closed doors. And that's why I titled this sermon, The Holy Spirit and Behind Closed Doors Living. Because the Holy Spirit has to be able to come home. And if I'm going to pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done, it better happen in my house. So, in 21, it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then 22 takes that word submitting and offers it to wives. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. This submission that is to be practiced between Christians, wives are to bring home in their relationship to their husbands. Now, this is a very funny passage because both men and women, when they look at this text all the way from verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 
um, 32, both men and women look at the words written to women more. And you know why I think it's funny? Because there's four times more words written to the husbands. But we all look at the wife passage more than the husband passage. I always have to point out to husbands, husbands, nowhere in this statement does it say you submit your wives. You command your wives to submit. Nowhere does it give the husband's responsibility to subject the wives. It tells the wives to look inside their souls to find the movement of the Holy Spirit and to subject themselves. In just a few verses, the command is going to go out to the husband that he is to sacrifice himself. He is to be sacrificed for the wife. What we've got here is a picture of husbands and wives who serve each other. Husbands and wives who serve one another. And wifely service is called submission, and husbandly service is called sacrifice. That's what the picture of a godly marriage is. And I have to, I hope you'll bear with me a moment as I tell you this. When I was trying to understand this text, because of course it's a troublemaking text, right? Everybody wants to say, what does this submit mean in verse 22? When you look at this verse in the original New Testament Greek, the submit's not there. In the original language, it says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. There's no verb. And so I had to back up to 21, and I found the submitting there, but submitting isn't a verb. It's what grammarians call a participle. It's something that's describing a verb, and it's part of something else. So suddenly I'm on a quest. Now those of you who hate grammar may not care, but there's actually a purpose in finding the verb. What is the verb? And so I look, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, no verb. I go to verse 20, giving thanks. You can guess from the ing on giving thanks that that's not a verb either. That's also a participle. And so I'm trying to answer a question about 22. I've backed all the way up to 20. I still haven't found a verb in this sentence. Did you know that a verb is the one thing a sentence has to have? If I yell at you, run, that's a complete sentence because it has a verb. So here I am trying to study the Scripture. I can't find a verb. I go all the way up to verse 19, and I find speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, and making melody. ING words, all three of them. All three of them participles, no verb. What is going on here? Another one of Paul's long sentences. I back all the way up to verse 18, where we started tonight, today. Do not be drunk on wine, but here's your verb. Be filled with the Spirit. That's your verb. Be filled. How? With the Spirit. And how am I going to recognize it? Because it's speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, and submitting. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And then Paul offers the woman logic for this that she can use inside her own spirit. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The first part of the logic is that a Christian home is supposed to be a model of a healthy church. 
Now, that's tricky if you've never seen a healthy church. But that's what Paul is trying to help the wives out with. It also is important that you have to have a husband who is willing to lead. I, I want you men to notice that you can't really fall in line with this passage if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not trying to grow in the Lord, if there's no spiritual leadership you're trying to offer. And I have to say it again, and there's nothing here that tells you to subject your wife. This is up to her. I will say to the wives, and I can't claim this for my own, I heard this from another preacher, and the preacher made sense to me, if you end up taking leadership of your home, you will create chaos in the home. It will invert the relationships. And chaos will reign. The Apostle Peter noticed this in the relationship between Sarah and Abraham. Sarah got impatient with God, you remember, because God didn't come across with the promised child fast enough. So she directed her husband to take her Egyptian servant as a surrogate, baby maker. And Abraham, for some reason, yielded to his wife when she gave him that direction. He sacrificed. <laughs> and so he made a baby with Hagar. And Sarah, who once again is driving the ship, ends up hostile and angry because of spirit of competition that she has with Hagar now. So Sarah, still driving the car, throws both the servant and the child into the desert. Peter commends Sarah because finally after that, she is able to submit her spirit and to quit controlling the family and creating chaos. That's the bias of the Scriptures. That there is a way that works better than another. As the church submits to Christ. And I also want to point out that when it says, just as the church submits to Christ, so also the wife should submit to her husband and everything, I want to tell you that that everything is everything normal. <laughs> because we have incidences in Scripture where wives are encouraged not to agree with their husbands. I feel like it's important to point this out. In Acts chapter 5, verse 9, Peter says to Sapphira, how could you agree with your husband to test the Spirit of the Lord? What's clear in Acts 5, 9 is that Peter expected Sapphira to disagree with her husband. So I just want to make clear here that this idea of submission is not that we throw out our own value systems and let it run wild. There are limits here because we're not God no matter how much husband may tell you that he is. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now this is a big deal. How did Christ love the church? Seems to me I remember false trials. I remember a flogging. I remember being beaten with canes. I remember being flogged. I remember being, him being nailed. Just husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. My suggestion would be that if you've got a man who is willing to read the Word, develop a submissive, sacrificial, loving spirit in Jesus Christ, is willing to sacrifice himself 
on behalf of his wife and family that he may be able to inspire his wife. He may not be as difficult a man to submit to as a man who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't love and doesn't sacrifice. I harp on these things a little bit because I've seen so many abuses of this text that I think it's important for us to honor it. He gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the Word. Once again, fellows, notice you can't do this if you're not reading your Bibles. And wives, please notice that part of the job that God has given your husband if you're married is that He is supposed to help you grow in your holiness toward God. He is supposed to help you in your walk in the Word. My encouragement to you is, please don't make that torture for Him. <laughs> Let Him support you in becoming holier. Because it's a job that God's going to hold Him accountable for. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. When I think of how the church and the wife is praised here, and the woman in Proverbs 31 is praised, one of the things that I think of is that husbands really need to bless their wives. They need to let their wives know that they are adored. They need to lift them up. They need to speak praise to them. They need to speak love and faithfulness and adoration to them. That's when the Holy Spirit comes home. Bring the Holy Spirit home. Because God is watching how we treat one another. God is watching you, wife, how you treat your husband. God is watching you, husband, how you treat your wife. And before we're done today, we're going to see that God is watching both of us in how we treat our children. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. As their own bodies. If your body has an ache, do you care for it? So also do we care for our spouse. When our body feels hungry, do we feed it? So also we should feed our spouse. Are we in discomfort? So do we see to our spouse's discomfort? Or is it really all about us? These are important things for us to stay accountable for. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. We have a change of relationships in marriage where the former commitments are moved on from and left behind. Leaving the father and mother and hold fast to the wife, and the two become one flesh. And Paul says this is a mystery. This is a big thing. This is a big spiritual heavenly deal. This is a big mystery, this whole one flesh thing. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Does that mean wives don't need to love their husbands? Well, I would offer you women Titus chapter 2 
where we see there that older women actually are supposed to train younger women how to love their husbands and their children. I don't know why you need it, because we husbands are obviously so easy to love. But in Titus, you hear all those amens? In Titus chapter 2, we find out that the older and more mature sisters are supposed to help the younger women learn that love, both for their husbands and for their children, and presumably to keep from killing any of them. In chapter 6, verse 1, the break between 5 and 6 in Ephesians is not one of the chapter breaks that makes the most sense to me. So I'm going to slop over this chapter for four verses. Children, God is in your house. He watches how you speak to your parents. He watches what your attitudes are toward your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's simply the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. We know that there were ten commandments given from Moses through Moses to the people. This commandment, honor your father and mother, is accompanied by a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that God is giving you. Being dishonoring, being disobedient to parents is characteristic of fallen people that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the command, first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But please notice verse 4. And I want you to notice how counterculture this was. Back in these ancient times, fathers slash husbands didn't really have much accountability for how they treated their wives or how they treated their children. And I've seen men who act like that. I've seen church men who act abusively like that, like there's no accountability for how they treat their spouse or children. But God is present and God is watching. And the Holy Spirit-driven father and the Holy Spirit-driven mother recognizes that they have a responsibility for how they handle their children. Do not provoke your children. Do not put your children in a situation where there is no win for them. That no matter what they do, they come out in the same wrong place where they can't ever win. Don't provoke them to anger where things feel fruitless, hopeless, useless. Don't put your kids in that situation. But bring them up in the, and we get two words here, discipline. And the other word, instruction, we could also use the word nurture. The first word, paideia, shows up in English as pedagogy. The instruction, nuthetas, comes into our language as nuthetic counseling, which is a kind of counseling which is uh, nourishing, inspiring, motivating, feeding. And what we find out is that children need both of these things. They need direction they need limits. The parents need to help them define where the lines are in life and what the natural flow of consequences is in life. But children also need to know beyond doubt that they are loved, that they are cherished, that they are treasured. Those of us who have been involved in the counseling profession recognize that people get broken when children do not get three critical messages from their parents 
you belong, you have value, and you are competent. Those are three messages that all children need to get from all parents. You have value, you belong, and you are competent. Children need to get that. Children need to know that. They need to be nourished and blessed in that so that they can grow confident of those things. Otherwise, you're going to find children with a big hole in their soul. It takes Christian parents who will provide both direction and nourishment to keep those holes from happening. Or, if you're down the road a ways, to repair them. And I've had some repair to do with my own kids. The big question, what is the big question? One of the biggest changes that can happen in our lives is to welcome the Spirit of God and let His influence of life, love, and praise fill us with song and fill us with sweetness of spirit. The Spirit of God, make no mistake, the Spirit of God makes us service-minded. It makes us thankful. And it makes us worshipful with real music in our souls. We feed others with the Word and with the Word in song. It transforms our homes into little kingdoms of God filled with His mercy and His care. The big question is when we pray, let your kingdom come, your will be done, will we give over our most private spaces, our own hearts, and our own homes? If we truly love God, it should show to those behind closed doors. The world is most polite to those who are strangers. We should be most gracious to those who have to put up with us the most. You know, as I close, I feel like I can't close without giving a tribute. I had a teacher when I went to undergraduate Bible college named Jim Evans. And Jim Evans, I love to this day. There were so many things to commend him. He never came before us unprepared. He never taught class by the seat of his pants. He was a hard teacher. He demanded a tremendous... I can, I can remember being angry at Jim and throwing my books on the floor when I would get in the house and say, this man has absolutely no idea of all the things I've got to do. But I tell you what, the teaching that he gave me was so foundational, so important. And one day, I met his daughter Celeste in one of the Christian bookstores in the area. And I commended her father to her. I said, Celeste, your father is such an excellent teacher. He blesses us. He brings steak uh, to teach us every time we're in class. And Celeste spoke to me a compliment about her dad that shut my mouth. And it has remained in my heart and mind ever since. She said, Mark, I want you to know that my dad is as much a Christian behind closed doors as he is out in public. And I was so stunned when I heard it. I immediately thought of it as one of the truest, best compliments that somebody can make about anyone. And I think it would be well for you and me, for all of us, to seek to live in such a way so that those who live with us behind closed doors would say he or she is as much a Christian behind closed doors 
as they are anywhere else in public. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We have so many ways to get all of this stuff wrong. And we end up on paths where we keep doing the same things that hurt ourselves and others over and over again. We cannot thank you enough for loving us enough to show us how things can be better than they normally would be. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your grace. Continue your work of transformation in our lives. And thank you for Jesus. May His Spirit truly dwell in us and may we truly express Him as you look to see your kingdom reign in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.